Good evening, everyone. My name is Marty Shaw, and welcome back to a new episode of Murders and Mysteries of New England. I wanted to do something a little different with this episode, so please bear with me as we're making this change, um, just simply because I wanted to try something different. I'm going completely off script, so I'm going just solely based off of my notes, so if you hear a lot of ums and uhs in this episode, that's why. <laughs> I've never done this before, so once again, bear with me as we're making this change. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about before we get into the episode is the scheduling of this, this podcast. Now, for those that may not know me personally, I am a college student, and as such, uh, school is back in session. We just got back last week at the time of this recording. So that's part of the reason why this episode's a little late. I had to get back into, you know, school stuff. But another thing that I thought about and wanted to do for a little bit was to change the episodes so that now they come out bi-weekly instead of weekly. Um, just simply because keeping up with a weekly podcast while also doing school, while also doing work, just doesn't seem viable. So for the time being, from now until I would say May, we're going to be um, uploading episodes bi-weekly instead, just simply because school gets in the way and, you know, college students have to focus on their work because they're paying for school. So just wanted to give y'all a quick little update on that. Um... I don't think there was anything else that I wanted to update regarding the podcast itself. Oh, we have an Instagram. Um, the Instagram is Murders, Mysteries, N-E, all one word. It will be at the end of this episode as well as in the show notes. So if you're listening to this on Spotify or Anchor, it should be underneath where the description is. I also will be releasing a little poll for those to take on Spotify. So if you're listening to this on Spotify, uh, it would be great if you could take a quick minute just to look at the poll and respond just so that I can better gauge how to do these episodes from here on out. Now, with all the announcements out of the way, let's get into the case. Tonight's case is in New Hampshire. But, as you read the title, it's the Connecticut River Valley Killer. So, if you want to listen to more episodes from New Hampshire, you can check out... Sorry, one second. You can check out the Bear Brook Murders. That was a new... Not a new episode. That was a one of our first episodes that we released. So, if you're looking for more New Hampshire cases, you can check that one out. Now... That everything's all out of the way, let's get into this episode. Just a quick warning to my listeners, this episode does discuss the topic of sexual assault. If you or someone you know is in an abusive situation, please reach out to a trusted friend, family member, or medical professional. No one deserves abuse, and no one deserves the trauma that comes with abuse. Thank you. 
So the Connecticut River Valley Killer was an unidentified American serial killer who was believed to be responsible for stabbing murders in and around Claremont, New Hampshire, as well as the Connecticut River Valley along the New Hampshire slash Vermont border. The range of the murders was about 50 miles or 80 kilometers, and Claremont, New Hampshire is about 50 miles or 80 kilometers from the capital, which is Concord. He worked primarily in the 1980s. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're gonna get into a little bit of his background. Um, well, not his background, but the background of the case. There were seven confirmed victims, but there's suspected to be more uh, killings just based off of how like the how the victims were found, where they were found, the location, such as that. Um, but this occurred in the mid-1980s when three young women disappeared around Claremont, New Hampshire. The skeletal remains of two of the women were recovered in a wooded area in 1985 and 1986, respectively. This wooded area, I'm assuming, is around Claremont. Um, but they were found within a thousand feet of each other, which then makes me wonder if the first body was placed there in 1980- or first body was placed, found in 1985, then the second body was found in 1986 when it was placed there. Not quite sure when- or how far apart they were. We know they were a year apart, but we're not sure, like, the exact dates and such. But we do know it did occur within a thousand feet of each other. The bodies were found within a thousand feet of each other. They were also found in Kellyville, New Hampshire, which is eight miles or 12 kilometers outside of Claremont. Their causes of death were difficult to de determine due to the conditions of the remains. So what I'm getting from this is that the remains were so badly decomposed that they just couldn't tell their causes of death at the time. However, certain factors did point to multiple stab wounds on the victims. So it's probably safe to say that they may have died from being stabbed multiple times by the killer. Um, <clears throat> a 36-year-old woman was also stabbed to death in a frenzied attack inside her home in Saxton's River, Vermont. Saxton's River, I believe, is close to the New Hampshire, uh, New Hampshire-Vermont border, and is also close to the Connecticut River, which flows between the two states. Um, but her death what occurred between the recovery of the first body in 1985 and the second body in 1986. And the remains of the third woman were later recovered about 10 days after what I imagine is the stabbing of the 36-year-old woman. I couldn't find- a lot of this information I'm generalizing and making some assumptions with, but feel free to do your own research if you'd like. Now we're going to get into the murders of the Connecticut River Valley Killer. Now, like I said at the top of the show, there are seven confirmed victims, but there 
is speculation that there may be more victims. But we'll get into the confirmed victims first. The first victim was Catherine Kathy Michelin, who was 26 years old and on October 24th of 1978, she left work to go to the Chandler Brook Wetland Preserve in New London, New Hampshire. Now, this location is where she photographed birds. She liked to photograph birds, so she would travel to take pictures of them. She was reported missing the following day because she didn't report... Either she didn't get back to loved ones or she didn't report to work. It didn't exactly say. But police remember seeing her car parked alongside another car near the preserve from a routine patrol the day before. So the day that she is presumed to have gone missing. Now... Her body, unfortunately, was found the next day, only yards away from where she was last seen. So, from where she was last seen taking pictures to where her body was found was only a few yards, which is really unfortunate. Um, her body was also found with at least 29 stab wounds. So, at least... 29 stab wounds were found on Catherine's body alone. Meaning, at least to me, this whoever did it probably was going for a frenzy attack. I'm taking some speculation here, but I'd imagine the killer probably did a surprise attack on Catherine and then proceeded to go into a frenzy attack where he, he just went repeatedly in quick succession stabbing Catherine's body until she basically died. The second person that we're going to look at for the confirmed killings is Mary Elizabeth Critchley. She was 37 years old at the time of her death. She was a student from the University of Vermont and on July 25th of 1981 she was hitchhiking to Waterbury, Vermont, where either she or a friend lived. My sources are a little conflicted on whether she lived there or her friend lived there, but we do know she was going to Waterbury uh, through hitchhiking. She disappeared near Interstate 91 at the Massachusetts-Vermont border. She was last seen by a friend who had dropped her off near Exit 13 of the Massachusetts Turnpike, I am assuming in Massachusetts. And on August 9th of 1981, so about a week or so, a week or two later, her body was found in a wooded area off Unity Stage Road in Unity, New Hampshire. Now, this was about 80 miles from where she was last seen. And due to the conditions of her remains, the medical examiner couldn't determine a cause of death for her either. The circumstances surrounding her, surrounding her disappearance and death are very suspicious to investigators, and it's currently being investigated as a homicide. The third victim that we're going to be discussing, that's a confirmed victim, is Bernice Cortemanche, excuse the pronunciation, 
She was 17 years old, so she would have been the Connecticut River Valley killer's youngest victim, at least the confirmed victims. Um, Bernice was a nurse's aide and a high school student. She was last seen by her boyfriend's mother in Claremont on May 30, May 30th of 1984 at around 3.30 p.m. She was thought to have set out to see her boyfriend in Newport by hitchhiking along the New Hampshire Route 12. However, she did not re reach her destination and was therefore reported missing. A few years later, two years actually, on April 19th of 1986, a fisherman happened upon Bernice's remains near sh the Sugar River in Newport, New Hampshire. A lot of these pronounce like I see a lot of pronunciations for my script or not for my script for my notes and I have to like do some googling to make sure I'm pronouncing everything correct but forensic examination had uncovered the remains of knife wounds to her chest and injury to her head and her throat had been slit the fact that it took almost two years to find her body is really unfortunate. However, thinking that a fisherman happened upon it in the water, I would imagine investigators probably didn't think to check the river first when looking for Bernice. This is once again all speculation. I'd like to keep making that clear. Nothing that I'm saying aside from the facts is completely 100% factual. A lot of this is just me making speculation and then going back to the facts. The fourth confirmed victim was Ellen Ruth Freed, who was a 26-year-old supervising nurse at the Valley Regional Hospital in, I'm guessing, New Hampshire. On July 22nd of 1984, Ellen had made a neat late-night stop to use a payphone at Leo's Market in Claremont around 2 a.m. I'm guessing she just got off of a shift at the hospital and it being 1984 they don't have cell phones to freely use so she had to stop to make a payphone. Now Ellen spoke with her sister for about an hour on said payphone before she noticed a strange car driving back and forth near the payphone. She had remarked about this strange car before stepping away from the phone briefly to make sure her engine would start. Because, you know, a car driving back and forth when it's 2am is very suspicious. Um, but Ellen did return back to the phone and finished the call after speaking with her sister for a few more minutes. However, Ellen failed to report to work the next day, and her car was found abandoned on Jarvis Road, which is a few miles or a few kilometers from the market where she used the telephone the night before. Skeletal remains were later found in an isolated and wooded area near the banks of the Sugar Ro River in Kellyville, uh, in the Kellyville area of Newport, New Hampshire. These remains were found 
about a year later, on September 19th of 1985. Now, her death is considered a homicide, and they found evidence of multiple stab wounds and probable sexual assault, though they couldn't exactly confirm one way or the other due to both the timing of when the body was found and I imagine the advanced decomposition the body had went through between her death and when she was found. The fifth person to have been killed by what we know is the River Valley Killer was Eva Marie Morse. She was a single mother, though I couldn't find how old she was, but she was last seen on July 10th of 1985, hitchhiking near the border of Claremont and Charleston, New Hampshire, along Route 12. She was, like the other victims, reported missing. And on April 25th of 1986, Eva's remains were found in West Unity, New Hampshire. Now, her remains were found by loggers about 500 feet or 150 meters from where Mary's body was found. For those of you that may not be keeping track, Mary was the second victim to have been killed by the River Valley Killer. Now, examination was found, examination was done, excuse me, and found evidence of knife knife wounds to the chest and neck. So if you've been paying attention, we can start to put together that whoever is doing this, one, has a knife, and two, likes to use said knife to do his attacks. The sixth confirmed victim was Linda Moore. She was a mother of two, and on April 16th of 1986, she was doing yard work alone outside of her home. This was the person that we had briefly talked about at the beginning of the episode. Uh, this was around 2 p.m. while her husband was at work and was in Saxton's River, Vermont, near Route 121. Her husband returned home after an hour after about an hour after Linda was last seen, goes inside his house and finds her dead in the living room. Now, there wasn't any sign of forced entry or ransacking that investigators could see, but 25 knife wounds could be found. The crime scene had suggested there was a fierce struggle between Linda and her attacker, as multiple witnesses reported seeing a slightly stocky, dark-haired man with a blue knapsack lingering near Linda's home the day of the murder. The man was thought to have been between 20 and 25 years old. He was described as being clean-shaven, wearing dark-rimmed glasses, and having a round face. After Linda's murder, a composite sketch of this man was released. But authorities are unsure if this suspect is connected to the Connecticut River Valley Killers. Killings. The Connecticut River Valley Killings. Excuse me. <laughs> um, but she is confirmed to have been one of the victims, as far as investigators are aware. 
The last confirmed victim of the Connecticut River Valley killings was Barbara Agnew, who was 38 years old and was returning from a skiing outing with her friends from Stratton, Vermont on January 10th of 1987. She was last seen at 10 p.m. heading home in Norwich, but snowplows come across Barbara's green BMW at a northbound I-91 rest stop in Hartford, Vermont. The door was cracked and blood was found on the steering wheel in back seat, and some blood-stained belongings were found in a dumpster nearby. On March 28th of 1987, so later in that year, Barbara's body was found near an apple tree on Advent Hill Road in a wooded area in Heartland, Vermont, near where her car was. So this was about 12 miles from the rest stop. She had been stabbed repeatedly in the neck and chest and had several defense wounds as well as a disabling wound. The there was a heavy snowstorm in the area during the night of Barbara's disappearance, but she was only about 10 miles from her home. Now, investigators couldn't exactly find a reason for Barbara pulling into the rest stop, and it has continued to in confuse investigators as far as the releasing of this episode. Now, those are the confirmed killings of the Connecticut River Valley Killer, but we also have some other possible victims. More specifically, we have five. And we're just gonna go through them quickly because there wasn't a lot of information I could find on these people. The first is Joan Dunham, who was a 14-year-old, who was sexually assaulted and strangled on June 11th of 1968 in Charleston, New Hampshire. Now, she is linked to the canonical killings on the basis of her geographical proximity between the killings and when where she was found. The next person, possible victim, is Sylvia Gray. She was 76 years old, and she was found bludgeoned and stabbed to death in a wooded area on October 5th of 1982. Uh, this was done in Plainfield, New Hampshire, and she was found a few hundred yards from her home. And she was also found a day after being reported missing. The circumstances of her disappearance, I couldn't find anything on. I couldn't find a lot on, at least. Um, but we do know she was bludgeoned and stabbed to death, so that makes me think she was connected to the killings based off of that. The third possible victim is Stephen Hill, who was 38 years old, and he was last seen in Lebanon, New Hampshire on June 20th of 1986, retrieving his paycheck from his employer. Now, on July 15th, so almost a month later, of 1986, Stephen's body was found with multiple stab wounds in Heartland. This was across the Connecticut River from where Sylvia's body was found four years earlier. Sylvia is a confirmed victim. Stephen is a possible victim. 
based off of where he was found and the stab wounds. The next person is Carrie Moss, who was also 14 years old. On July 25th of 1989, Carrie left her parents' home in New Boston, New Hampshire to visit friends in Goffston when she disappeared. Two years later, almost to the exact date on July 24th of 1991, skeletal remains were found in a wooded area in New Boston. These skeletal remains happened were found to have been Carrie's. Her cause of death could not have been determined, but she was thought to have been a victim of homicide. How her... I, I would say of the five that we're going to cover, of the five possible victims that we're going to cover, hers was one that I couldn't exactly see how it was related to the confirmed victims. I'd imagine it was probably just a matter of proximity, but even still, I couldn't find much else on how she could have possibly been a victim. I think it was just the timing of her death to the timing of the others' death that might have put her with the other confirmed victims. The last person that we're going to be looking at is an unidentified person who we will be referring to as Jane Doe. Now, Jane was found on June 24th of 1989. She was found decomposing, or decomposing body parts consisting of arms and legs belonging to a woman were found dumped alongside the Massachusetts Route 78 in, oh, <coughs> excuse me, in Warwick, Massachusetts. Now, this was less than a mile from the New Hampshire border. And it is believed her entire body was dismembered as her head and torso were never found. And it's believed that the head and torso or the rest of the body has been disposed somewhere else. Now, investigators ruled this death a homicide and described the Jane Doe as a Caucasian woman of average height with an athletic building body type. Her identity is still unknown as of this recording, and the homicide remains unsolved. I believe, like Carrie, the Jane Doe was lumped in as a possible victim due to the timing of the murder and where her murder was found. Although with this one, the body was dismembered, or it's believed that the body was dismembered, so... That one, I'm not 100% sure how it connects as well, but it's a possible victim, so we're not going to know until we know more information about the case itself. Now, we've been talking about death and murder and unknown people for a little bit, but there is some... Comparatively good news with this case <laughs> that I've found. We do have a survivor of the Connecticut River Valley Killer. A survivor of the River Valley Killer. Her name was Jane Bor Borowski. I'm going to be referring to her by her last name just because we also did cover another person named Jane. 
but she is a possible, but Borowski is a confirmed survivor. Now, she was 22 years old at the time of her attack and was seven months pregnant. She was returning from a county fair in New Hampshire around midnight on August 6th of 1988. She had stopped at a closed convenience store in West Swainsea to purchase soda from a vending machine. She was returning to her car when she had noticed a Jeep Wagoneer parked next to her. And through the rearview mirror, Jane could see the driver of the vehicle walking around the back of her car, which is very suspicious. First off, being at 2 a.m., at a closed convenience store, being the only person there you're going to park next to them. Seems suspicious to me, if you ask me. Um, anyways. The man had approached the open window where Jane was, and had asked if the payphone was working. Before Jane could respond, or right after Jane responded, we're not sure, we're not quite sure when, the man grabbed Jane and pulled her from the vehicle. Uh, he starts accusing her of beating up his girlfriend and asked if she had Massachusetts plates on her car. And as such, Jane begins to struggle against the man. Now, the man had asked for Massachusetts plates, but what he had failed to notice was that Borowski had New Hampshire plates on her car, not Massachusetts plates. But this didn't seem to matter to him. As he proceeded to stab Borowski 18 to 27 times before he drove away, leaving her to die. We believe the man's plan was to abduct Borowski, but that plan went awry, so he decided to kill her instead. However, good news, Jane managed to return to her car and drive towards a friend's house for help. She was driving to the friend's house who was on New Hampshire Route 32, about two miles from the crime scene where she was stabbed. Jane had noticed a vehicle driving in front of her and soon realized the vehicle was her attacker's jeep. So she was the one following her attacker, unintentionally. But Borowski reached the friend's house and the people inside came to her aid. We know the attacker performed a U-turn and slowly passed by the house as Jane was being attended to before he sped off into the night. We're not sure what kind or what color the Jeep was, what the plates had said, nothing about the Jeep or the occupant in the Jeep. Jane was treated at the hospital and... The attack had resulted in multiple severe wounds, including a severed jugular vein, two collapsed lungs, so both of her lungs had collapsed, a kidney laceration, and severed tendons in both her knees and her thumb. Her baby, thankfully, survived, but not without complications, as the daughter would be diagnosed with mild Cerebral palsy. Excuse me. Jane was able to provide authorities with both a composite sketch of the man and the thir first three characters of the attacker's license plate. What these first three letters were, either I couldn't find or I did find, but 
didn't write it down. But the killings had ceased following Jane's attack and the case became cold. Investigation kicks off and New Hampshire State Police bring in criminal psychologist John Philpin to develop a profile of the killer. Now, Philpin's approach is to gather as much information, gather as much of the same information, excuse me, that the police used in the very beginning. So this could be anything from police reports of the crime scene to autopsy reports to autopsy photographs. Philpin said that Borowski's attacker is a very deliberate, methodical, and calm person. As she had recalled that he seemed so calm and cool about everything throughout the entire attack. And the attacker never got mad or even showed nervousness. According to Philpin, it seemed as though the greater the resistance, the more determined the attacker was. As, as soon as Borowski's resistance began to wane, the attack ended. Investigators began examining prior homicides in that area, and two cases of homicide were found. In 1978 and 1981, which reinforced the presence of a serial killer in the area. Police believe six of the victims were abducted and taken to remote wooded areas where they were murdered as they had all suffered similar stab wounds. Most of his victims were found off of dirt roads, but none of the confirmed victims were sexually assaulted. None that were 100%. We did have one person that it was probable, but investigators didn't want to say one way or the other, either because they couldn't, they didn't know, or they didn't want to say. Um... At the peak of the investigation, investigators had noted similarities in the modus operandi, the often used dump site, and specific wound patterns that may have linked to many of the murders. Um, this suggested a common criminal in the case. So investigators looked at how the killings were done, the often used dump site of where the bodies would be found, and specific wound patterns of the victims to suggest that there may have been a common criminal in the case. We've also got a few suspects that we're going to be looking at for this case tonight. The first suspect is a man by the name of Delbert Tallman. Now, he actually had a victim that may have fit the criteria for the Connecticut River Valley killings. Um, the victim's name was Heidi Marin. She was 16 years old, and on May 20th of 1984, she went jogging in Heartland, Vermont, on Martinsville Road. The next day, May 21st of that year, her body was found in a swampy area behind the Heartland Elementary School. It was found that she had been raped and stabbed to death. Now, he had confessed confessed to the crime and was tried, but later on, Tallman recanted his confession and was later acquitted of the crime. Nearly three years later, Barbara's body would be found about a mile from where Heidi was discovered. So, if you don't remember, um, Heidi's body was found by the Heartland Elementary School, and Barbara's was found 
by an apple by an apple tree on Advent Hill Road in Heartland. So not too far from where both crimes had been committed. Um Tallman had resided in Bellows Falls, Springfield, and Windsor, Vermont. He resided in Claremont, New Hampshire, though, which is the epicenter of most of the Connecticut River Valley killings. He was convicted in 1996 on two counts of lewd conduct with a child and incarcerated at Lake County Prison in Florida. He was incarcerated because he failed to comply with the sex offender registration requirements. What those requirements are, I'm not personally sure on, um, but I'm pretty sure if you look it up, you'll be able to find where the um, criteria is. He was released from prison on October 6th of 2010. So he served time from 1996 to 2010 when he was released. Now, some sources had cited Heidi's death as unsolved and part of the Connecticut River Valley killings because there was no evidence that was available to the public at the time, or even now, that Tallman was involved in any of the other cases. The only case that he was 100%, were 100% sure on, was with Heidi Marin. But some sources say that Tallman might have been the Connecticut River Valley killer, Hence, the other um, similar deaths and locations and whatnot. The next suspect is Gary Westover, who was 46 and... Sorry, excuse me. Gary Westover was 46 years old, and in October of 1997, he relayed to his uncle that he had a confession. This was in Grafton, New Hampshire, and Westover was a paraplegic and wheelchair-bound. His uncle was the retired Grafton County Sheriff's Deputy, Howard Minnan. Westover had told Minnan that he was forced to participate in Barbara's murder, who we just talked about. According to his confession... Three of Westover's friends had picked him up on the day of Barbara's murder for a quote-unquote night of partying. They had loaded Westover in his wheelchair into their van and set out for Vermont, um, where they had abducted, murdered, and dumped Barbara's body off of a, a back road. Now, Barbara was the Connecticut River, River Valley Killer's final victim, as we've noticed, as we note. Because after her death, the killings had stopped. Uh, part of it, we're going to get into a little more in the conclusion, but part of it may have been because of Borowski's uh, attack, pretty much. Um, after they had killed and dumped Barbara's body, they took Westover back to his home. Now, Westover had provided the names of three of the friends, and Minnan had felt that the authorities were not interested in his information when he told them that, hey, I have three people that were told to me about who killed Barbara, one of the victims, or something like that. I don't know. But Minnan had felt the authorities were not interested in his information. 
Westover had died in March of 1999. Nope. Westover died in March of 1988. And Minin had died in 2006. We're not sure where, if anywhere, um, Westover's confession went. As I couldn't find any information regarding anything after his confession, pretty much. We're also unsure if he was the Connecticut River Valley killer or if he had participated in anything, but we do know that he says that he was taken by his friends to Vermont where they killed Barbara, pretty much. The next suspect that we will be looking at, our third suspect, is a man by the name of Michael Andrew Niccolo. He was a deceased murderer and a suspected serial killer. In August of 2006, he was identified as a potential suspect. Um, several of his, not several of his, several of the victims were nurses. And Lynn Marie Carty, who was a private investigator, had discovered that his first wife was a nurse and his mother worked at a hospital. See where the investigation might see that he could potentially be the person? Niccolo had spent time in New England since at least 1978, as far as we know. He was also in the general vicinity at the time as most of the murders in the 80s during that time. Um, one of Westover's aunts, the deceased person who confessed that he and his friends murdered Barbara, one of Westover's aunts wrote to Anne Agnew, which is the sister of Barbara. Now... Westover's aunt, who I couldn't find a name for, gave information originally given by Westover to Minin. Minin is the county sheriff, or was the county sheriff at the time. And Anne Agnew had forwarded the letter to Car Cardi and suspected that Westover was used as bait to get Barbara to pull over in the rest stop. How this all relates, I'm personally unsure, but that's the information that I was able to find. Um, Cardi had believed that Nicolau was one of the men named in Westover's confession. However, this was not confirmed. We're unsure if Nicolau was indeed one of the men Westover uh, was taken by to basically go murder Barbara, we're not sure. Um, Cardi had ran Nicolau's name by Westover's aunt, who said the name quote-unquote sounded familiar. Cardi believes the authorities are in possession of the names Westover provided to Minin at the time, and further speculated that Westover may have become acquainted with Nicolau at a local Virginia hospital. However, all of this is speculation. None of it's been confirmed, as far as we know. DNA testing in this in the cases so far has been inconclusive of whether or not Nicolau was the one that did it. 
Nicolau lived in Virginia at the time of Bernice, Ellen, and Eva's murder. So three of the victims were murdered while Nicolau was in Virginia, or lived in Virginia. Whether or not he was actually in Virginia at the time, we're unsure. Linda, who was one of the victims, noted that- nope, not Linda. Linda's son, who was one of the victims, noted that he does not completely match the description of Jane's attacker or the composite sketch that was made earlier. Um, Borowski had previously dismissed him as her attacker when initially shown photographs of him. And Virginia authorities also considered Nicolau as a potential suspect, but for a different reason. In 1984, he was a potential suspect to a raping along the Blue Ridge Parkway, but it's unknown if Nicolau's DNA was ever compared in this case. So, he's a suspect in the rape case, but... He hasn't been proven one way or the other, and the same can be said for the case. Our fourth person is Rodney Stanger, who in 2012, or in 2012, the case was profiled on the show Dark Minds. If you've seen it, I hear it's pretty interesting. Um, but... In this case, in the show, Rodney Stanger and an unidentified man were identified on the show as potential suspects in the Connecticut River Valley killings. He was convicted of killing his girlfriend, Crystal Morrison, and shortly before her death, Crystal called her sister implied and implied that he was involved in murders, including Molly's. Uh, Rodney was, or Stanger was a suspect in the disappearance and death of Molly Bish. And when shown a picture of Stanger, Borowski did not believe he was her attacker either. The last man that we're going to be looking at is an unidentified man, who we shall be referring to from now on as John Doe. The son of this John Doe, had come forward earlier and suspected that his father was involved in the Connecticut River Valley murders. The man's wife had told her son that when she saw the composite of Borowski's attacker, she believed that it was her husband. She later told the son one night that the unidentified man, the John Doe, came home covered in blood. She did not ask what happened, the wife did not ask what happened in fear for her life, which makes sense to me, and instead helped the man burn the bloody clothing. The next day, the wife saw on the news that a woman had been murdered within a mile of a bar that the man had frequented. This man is described as violent and dangerous, who has had issues with all of the women in his life. Um, his wife had said that he had rage issues and would go, quote-unquote, completely out of control. He once actually threw his wife out of a second-story window and held her by her hair. Which, if you know anything about how ser serial killers are made, this is definitely a major red flag just all over the place. Um, he was also described as being a sexual deviant. 
Now, none of the victims, as far as we know, were ever sexually assaulted in the case. But if the potential victims were confirmed, or were to be confirmed, then this unidentified man would probably bring up more bells for investigators as he's described as a sexual deviant. Um, he owned a Jeep rank Wagoneer and as the son had rode with him every day. When shown a picture of the suspect, Borowski was almost certain that the man was indeed her attacker. Um, however, this John Doe died in 2008 without ever being investigated, and it's unknown as of right now if police ever considered him a suspect. We know he may have been a potential suspect, but we're not sure if police considered him an actual suspect. Now, to wrap up this episode, which I have a feeling is going to be super long, um, the Connecticut River Valley killings remains unsolved as of the time of this recording. The authorities suspect that if the murders are the work of one man, he may have moved to another part of the country. They suspect this is the case possibly because Jane Borowski had survived the attack. If <clears throat> the unidentified man was her attacker and was the Connecticut River Valley killings, it would make sense that he either died or moved to another part of the country as the killings had stopped after Borowski's attack. The authorities hope the killer has been incarcerated for other crimes, but also on the opposite end of that, fear that he is still on the loose and killing at random. The suspect is approximately 5 feet 7 to 5 feet 8 inches tall and weighs between 150 and 160 pounds. He's described as having blue hair, he's clean-shaven, and may be driving a golden brown Jeep Wagoneer with a license plate num um with a license plate including the numbers 662. The suspect was in his mid-30s, authorities suspect, to early 40s in 1991. And Jane had described her attacker as normal looking. If this is indeed all the same person, we have no idea what his name is even. So, as of right now, this case is still considered unsolved. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to this as much as I enjoyed researching and talking about it. Even though the Connecticut River Valley killings are still unsolved, my hope is that one day we can finally put this case to rest and have the killer atone for his sins. If you like this episode, please feel free to give it a rating on the streaming service that you are listening to this on. And for those of you that didn't catch it at the beginning, we have an Instagram now. If you'd like to go follow us, go ahead to Instagram and search up Murders, Mysteries, N-E, all one word. It'll also be in the show description and at the beginning of this. And stay tuned for not next week, but the week after, where we will continue to talk about murders and mysteries of New England. Have a good night.